DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Gaudium et Spes, Latin for joy and hope. The Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World is one of the four constitutions resulting from the Second Vatican Council in 1965. It was the last and longest published document from the Council and is the first constitution published by an ecumenical council to address the entire world. Gaudium et Spes clarified and reoriented the role of the Church's mission to people outside of the Catholic faith. It was the first time that the Church took explicit responsibility for its role in the larger world. Approved by a vote of 2,307 to 75 of the bishops assembled at the Council, it was promulgated by Pope Paul VI on the 7th of December, 1965, the day the Council ended. We now begin our conversation with Archbishop Lucas discussing Gaudium et Spes the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. Welcome, Archbishop. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again. Thank you so much for doing this series of conversations on these incredible documents that stem from Vatican II. I've just loved going back, not just reading it for a study, but I found myself being drawn into a time of prayer and reflection with each one we have visited so far. It's done the same thing for me. It's been, a, been that opportunity. I studied the documents, of course, uh, several times over the years, but to read them again prayerfully and again with the light of the experience I've had as a as a priest and a bishop over these years and, and then in light of the circumstances that we're all facing now with COVID, some of the other challenges, uh, there's a, still a great kind of contemporary ring to these documents and beautiful invitation still to understand our life together in the church and then the mission of the church in the world. Ever ancient, ever new. That's one of the reasons I, I love the documents so much is because they do go back into that great patrimony of the church and are continually drawing from it like a wellspring. Sure. The uh, Second Vatican Council was uh, built. It was held, you might say, standing on the foundation of all that, that had gone before it in, in the history of the church. It wasn't a novelty by any means. And so it really is rooted in our ancient tradition. At the same time, even though now some decades have gone by since the council and so, since the documents were, were published, I think we see, recognize the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us a, a language and a, a framework that stands the test of time and that brings us right in, into our, our own moment in, in history with a deeper understanding of, of the Lord's plan for us now. 
I am so glad that we're talking about Gaudia Metzpahs, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. That is a document that, I, of course, I first read when I was in college, and it's the biggest. I thought it was the most compelling, the most exciting. And I have talked to seminarians who would later are now very established priests and are loving their priesthood that were excited, especially by Gaudium et Spes 22. They would quote that to me as one of their favorite passages out of that. It is a remarkable document, isn't it? It is. And as opposed to the other documents from, from the council, I think the audience for this one was intended to be wider. Uh, anyone could read any of the documents. Of course, they're not, they're not secret. Much of um, what had to do with uh, doctrine or with the internal workings of the church, the audience was primarily in, internal for us to understand our life in Christ together in, in the church. But this pastoral constitution helps us see the relationship of the church to the world. And, you know, the subtitle has to do with the modern world. I don't, I don't exactly know what the modern world is, if it's modern in, 19, in the 1960s, but it, it's really just the world, you know, because in the world we find the circumstances in which our life in Christ is to be lived, whatever ages that we're living it. It's meant to be more widely read and, and, and understood, not at all departing from the doctrinal documents, not really not a novelty, but uh, still rooted as the other documents are in, in our in our ancient tradition, with the encouragement to see that in our time now and and in our place, we're we're to live the mission of the church to to understand it and to embrace it and to live it. Yeah, it is interesting. I can emphasize it's the church in the modern world, and it's not about the modern world or on the modern world, but it, it's talking about how the church has a place. It's actually in the world and how it relates to it. And our understanding is that the church is unique in all the world. It's not just one organization among many or somebody's bright idea about how to look at things or approach things, but it's fulfilling the mission that our Heavenly Father first gave to His Son, Jesus Christ, which then Jesus has now passed on and, and shares with, with the church, he himself remaining at the head of the church. So he, he hasn't sent us off on our own way. He, we very much recognize that we have our life in him. The blessing of, of our life in Christ is for us who are incorporated into his living body in, in the church, but it's also for, for the life of the world. In various ways, the, the documents of the council present this, but this one in particular, you know, remind us that this is our responsibility. We live in the world. We can't help it. We see it as our mission field, filled with opportunities, uh, filled with many challenges, and certainly the brokenness of humanity is all around us. Jesus did not shrink from any of that, and he is with us as we, too, live as fully as we can in the world, keeping our moral bearings, keeping our identity as, as disciples of Jesus Christ, but uh, not hunkering down, not being defensive, but ready to share our faith, and in particular, to share life with our brothers and sisters, even those who are very different from us culturally and even morally or religiously. I'm glad you brought that up because when you mention the world, again, if we reflect on how this particular constitution was formed, it was 2,000 plus bishops from around the world, from so many different cultures, from so many different realities, so many different experiences. It shouldn't surprise us, should us, that Gaudium et Spes would be one that took a lot of conversation, a lot of debate, a lot of back and forth before it was actually promulgated. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was the last document. So that's not a bad thing. It's actually part of the whole process of discerning, isn't it? Yes, and as the document would uh, show, 
this meeting and conversation of prayer and reflection among bishops from all over the world leads us to a, to a kind of a common understanding of the nature of the human person revealed by God, but also understood in, in our own experience, the challenges that we face, the brokenness that is the result of sin. Particular circumstances vary in, in different places in the world, and we need to take no, note of those. We're able in Gaudium et Spes really to, to read a deep understanding of the human person and the human condition is applicable and uh, useful, inspiring in settings all over the world. I think for the listener and I hopefully the reader who will go back and really re- dive into this, it shouldn't surprise you once you get into it. You begin to hear the influence of a Polish cardinal named Motia, who I, of course, I'm referencing Pope St. John Paul II. He would be considered if not the author per se, uh, one of the primary architects of this particular document. I had a reflection right at the time of his death, and it's, I, I think about it still. One of my overall impressions of uh, John Paul II among many, but one of the things that, that I could say about him for sure is that, that, he, that he was not defensive. He was immersed in culture in Poland and some of the cultural aberrations that were forced on Polish people during his lifetime, Nazism and and communism, but never ran away from the world in in which he was living. He rather saw it as a place to live out his faith, to witness to his love of Jesus Christ, not simply uh, to be true to himself, which he was, but also as a way of inviting others to come to know Jesus, to, to experience life, and then to understand the culture from the perspective of the gospel. So he was a great um, proponent, then we might say, of this document, but other other aspects of the Second Vatican Council. He participated and and just understood uh, how important it is that the Church see herself as an as an actor, and a unique one, as I've said, in the world, the modern world. If we want to put put it that way, with something unique and important, something truthful and powerful to bring to our understanding of ourselves and of the challenges and opportunities that we face. During that process of the building or the, the composing, there would be another, too, a bishop from Germany named Ratzinger, who came on board about halfway through the process. I don't know if it necessarily was the absolute beginning, but it was one of the shining benchmarks of what would become a very fruitful relationship in trying to help the world understand and the church to understand its place. Yeah, and as you're talking about the, the two of them, we know that those who were really influential at the time of the council have, have been fading from the scene now over over some time, but the work uh, that they accomplished, they and many others, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, remains, and remains still very compelling uh, for us in our time. From the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, Preface. The joys and hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts, for theirs is a community composed of men, united in Christ. They are led by the Holy Spirit in their journey to the kingdom of their Father, and they have welcomed the news of salvation, which is meant for every man. 
That is why this community realizes that it is truly linked with mankind and its history by the deepest of bonds. Hence, the Second Vatican Council, having probed more profoundly into the mystery of the Church, now addresses itself without hesitation not only to the sons of the Church and to all who invoke the name of Christ, but to the whole of humanity. For the Council yearns to explain to everyone how it conceives of the presence and activity of the Church in the world of today. Therefore, the Council focuses its attention on the world of men, the whole human family along with the sum of those realities in the midst of which it lives. That world, which is the theater of man's history and the heir of his energies, his tragedies, and his triumphs, that world which the Christian sees as created and sustained by its Maker's love, fallen indeed into the bondage of sin, yet emancipated now by Christ, who was crucified and rose again to break the stranglehold of personified evil, so that the world might be fashioned anew according to God's design and reach its fulfillment. Though mankind is stricken with wonder at its own discoveries and its power, it often raises anxious questions about the current trend of the world, about the place and role of man in the universe, about the meaning of its individual and collective strivings, and about the ultimate destiny of reality and of humanity. Hence, giving witness and voice to the faith of the whole people of God gathered together by Christ, this council can provide no more eloquent proof of its solidarity with, as well as its respect and love for the entire human family with which it is bound up, than by engaging with it in conversation about these various problems. Again, the name that so widely known as is Gaudium et Spes, which means joy and hope. And that's always taken from the very beginnings, first sentence of a primary document that will come out of the Vatican. I think that's a great way to start, isn't it? Joy and hope. Well, it, it, it's even richer than that. If you don't mind, I'm going to oh, please just read do. the first, the first uh, sentence of the Vagadium. It says, the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the men of our time, especially of those who are poor or afflicted in any way, are the joy and hope, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. We're invited as, as followers of Jesus Christ to, to identify ourselves with our neighbors in our time. Whether we're inside the church or outside of it, joy and hope and anguish, all of those things are, are part of life. They're not exclusive to the church, nor or do we see, as well, we're meant to have a, this peaceful life inside the church and there's all this problem out, outside. The church lives in the world, we, we might say, but, but not of the world. Throughout the document, it brings forth so many dichotomies, uh, contradictions, as it were, where it will talk about abundance and poverty, freedom and slavery, solidarity, but also opposing camps, the search for a better material world, and the need for a parallel spiritual advancement. That hope and anxiety is still something that we're living today, isn't it, 50 years later? And it's been the experience of the church from, from the very beginning. And it's been the experience of God's people 
we read about similar experiences in, in the Old Testament, which again brings us back to the idea that Jesus wants to be part of all this and is part of the human experience. And we understand our life as human persons more fully as the more we understand him and the more that we experience life in him, we feel better equipped to live in these contradictions, which the Lord himself had to do during his life on earth and during his ministry, to share the the joys of companionship and of family life and the joy of of praying and celebrating uh, with people, but also identifying himself with the poor and uh, with those who, who were outcast, suffering egregiously the torture of his crucifixion. Everything that's part of the human experience is familiar to the Lord. And because of the brokenness resulting from sin, it is part of our, of our experience. We come to it, though, as Jesus himself did, with an understanding of the plan of our Heavenly Father, of his desire for our flourishing, and of the reality of sin, but also the remedy for sin. Even though we have the experience over time, our own lifetime, but certainly over the sweep of history of these contradictions existing together and, uh, you know, not a full experience of the harmony and the flourishing that, that is God's plan for us. We know that the brokenness and uh, dissension, that, that those don't have the, the final word and that ultimately the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ conquers all that. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death, and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, 
who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. It's interesting, in the beginning of the document, it sets up the light and the darkness, the understanding how man was made in the image of God, that it's the unique dignity of each person because they have been created. But then also, on the other side of that, the nature of sin. It's important to see that because it states it's a clear choice. It's the choices that we can make between one or the other. I know it can blob into a a big gray area for so many people sometimes, but it wants us to understand the basic difference in the two. Well, the good news is that, that it's not a choice of equal things. We talked about this a little bit at the very beginning of our discussion of lumen gentium, you know, the light. The light is not just a, a brighter shade of darkness. You know, the light who is Jesus Christ is a unique gift, and uh, the, the Lord comes with a, a power as the Son of God, which can and does overcome all of these things, ultimately. We do see this dichotomy, if you, if you want to call it that, and at certain moments, particularly in life, the, the invitation to choose what's, what's really good and life-giving. And to begin to experience that it's a kind of life that is different in kind from the life that we would live in darkness, the life that we live when we settle for dissension or, or division, or when we uh, participate in oppression or uh, ignore the needs of the poor. We can, we can live that way, if you want to call it living, but it, we do can live in this world that way. The church proclaims by her presence in the world the opportunity to live it in a way that, that's entirely different and better, not just nicer, but has, has a power and ability to, to lift us uh, above the, the brokenness so that we experience healing uh, from that. Again, it's very clear in, in this document and, and in other places that the purpose of the church isn't just to try to rise above troubles and keep us all safe from that. That's not how the Lord lived, and it's not how he expects us to share it in his mission. It is the truth, though, that, that our experience of, of life in Christ enables us to taste already the blessing, the power, the, 
the sweetness of, of the eternal life, which is always God's plan for us here where we live. I think it's in paragraph 14 where it talks about the two characteristics that are essential to man's nature, of course, in the understanding of body and soul. The fact that we need to actually establish that as a truth is interesting, isn't it? What they would term the modern world, that we would have to say there is a distinction between body and soul. Well, and that there is a spiritual dimension to the human person and that there's a, there are spiritual realities. So that it was stressed, as, as you say, in this document so many decades ago, but it's even more necessary now. Um, I think what we're, really we're, we're experiencing an attempt by more and more people in our country, certainly, but other places too, to, to live as if this was it and to, to think that everything that's important or necessary is going to be decided in this world and has to be decided on human terms, scientific terms, if you want to put, put it that way, material terms. It's simply not true. It's, it's not enough. It leaves out an, an essential aspect of, of the truth that human persons are spiritual as well as material beings and that we can't understand who we are, and we can't understand the meaning of our lives, and we can't understand the meaning of the life of another person and the respect that's due to that person without some understanding, some way of adverting to, to the spiritual aspect of, of who we are. But some people are doing it deliberately, many thoughtlessly, uh, but it, certainly there, there are powerful forces in, in our culture presently that would try to get us to think that that, that's, that, that isn't the case, that that's superstition or somebody's crazy imagination or, or something. Yeah, I love the language in this as it says in 14 that we are more than a, a quote, a speck of nature or a nameless unit in the city of man, unquote. And these are written by men under the influence of the Holy Spirit, though, that have lived through one of the worst centuries in human history as far as war and atrocities. And it was still continuing even as they were writing this in other parts of the world. Those social structures that were based on, on this concept that men or women are just atoms, you know, just, just uh, cogs in the machine of the state or of some you know, social experiment. When these documents are written, they were living really with the stark consequences of those forces on millions and, and millions of, of people. The inspiration that we received from the scripture would clear to them that, you know, that's, that can't be the way that we go and that can't be what we settle for. And there's no, no reason why that we should. But as we said, over time, these same temptations toward ignoring the plan of God, ignoring sort of the givenness of how God has created the world and, and created the human person, there's always a temptation to that, either individually or corporately. So if, if in this century it's not Nazism, it might be something else, some other just sort of materialism, but in any case, it's an ignoring of, the, of spiritual realities, ignoring the reality of God, uh, ignoring the, the, the unique worship and obedience that's owed to the good God uh, who creates us. And that always leads to something bad. Yeah, there was... Again, another sentence in 14 that I just, I don't know, it just really struck me. It says, so when he recognizes in himself a spiritual or and immortal soul, he is not being led astray by false imaginings that are due to merely physical or social causes. It's as though it's speaking to the individual saying, 
You are not being led by false imaginings. This is true. This is real. You feel something transcendent. There is the more. Believe it. Follow it. Isn't that interesting? It seems so basic, but but basic is good and needs to be stressed. And again, I think it needs to be stressed in our time. We're made for a relationship with God. The catechism begins with that early on. You know, it's a basic part of our understanding, you know, of the human person and and of the relationship that God desires to have with with each person that, that he creates. We'll continue our conversation with Archbishop Lucas on Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world in our next episode. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this program has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to bring authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.